evening. Glad to see you here this evening. Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, verse number 18. In the very earliest days, Christians recognized each other by declaring either Maranatha, which means the king is coming, or with the phrase, Jesus is Lord. It took several centuries for the cross to become the universal symbol of our faith. John Stott notes that the cross did not become the common symbol of Christianity until the second century. By the time of Emperor Constantine, the, church, the cross had become well established as the sign of the Christian faith. In some ways, it is a strange symbol. Because crucifixion was much hated in the ancient world. It may have been the most brutal means of execution ever devised. Unlike modern methods of capital punishment, which are designed to produce a quick death, crucifixion was meant to do just the opposite. It was meant to guarantee that the person on the cross would die a slow and agonizing death. Even in our day, some people would like to remove the cross from its prominence in the preaching of the church, saying such things as, <clears throat> well, the message of a crucified Jew as Savior is ridiculous to the modern mind and ineffective for growing a large church. So move on to something better. A crucified Messiah is unacceptable. But if you will promise people prosperity, give them emotional experiences, or build their self-esteem, you will fill the pews. Well, if gathering numbers of unregenerate people is your goal, then that's probably true. But this, in effect, produces two problems. First of all, it fails to do justice to the centrality of the cross in the New Testament. Jesus defined his own purpose and mission in going to the cross when he took his 12 disciples aside in Luke chapter 18, verse 31. He told them, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Now, of course, at that time, the disciples did not understand what the Lord had said. The meaning was hidden from them, but they ultimately came to understand. Later, the apostle Paul would define his own existence as having the crucified Jesus indwell him. In Galatians, he wrote, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In fact, Paul defined his old ministry as a proclamation of the cross itself. In his letter to the church at Corinth, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I am resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. D.A. Carson, in his wonderful book on the, the cross and the Christian ministry, 
makes this statement about the centrality or the importance of the cross. He says, at the moment, books are pouring off the presses, telling us how to plan for success, how vision consists in clearly articulated ministry goals, how the knowledge of detailed profiles of our communities constitutes the key to successful outreach. I'm not for a moment suggesting that there is nothing to be learned from such studies, but after a while, one may perhaps be excused for marveling at how many churches were planted by Paul and Whitfield and Wesley and Stanway and Judson without ever having enjoyed those advantages. Of course, all of us need to understand the people to whom we minister, and all of us can benefit from small doses of such literature. But massive doses sooner or later dilute the truth. Ever so subtly, we start to think that success more critically depends on thoughtful sociological analysis than on the gospel. Barna becomes more important than the Bible. We depend on plans and programs and vision statements. Somewhere somewhere along the way, we have succumbed to the temptation to displace the foolishness of the cross with the wisdom of strategic planning. Again, I insist my position is not, li- not a thinly veiled plea for a seat-of-the-pants ministry that plans nothing. Rather, I fear that the cross, without ever being disavowed, is in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy. By re- relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight, whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the sinner, we are not far removed from idolatry. The second thing that we have to note is that it gives away too much. Keep in mind that people like that are not really trying to destroy Christianity. What they're trying to do is save it from being irrelevant by making it acceptable to secular people on secular terms. And the only way that they see that they can do that is to get rid of the cross. But we must recognize the temptation that we all face, and that is to abandon the cross for something that is more acceptable, more practical, and wiser in the eyes of the world. That is the same temptation that faced the church at Corinth. Verse 18 of our text tonight, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I want us to look at three truths that we can draw from this passage tonight. First of all, the cross 
either def- divides us or unifies us. See, if they're clearly for the message of the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross always has and always will create a division within mankind. According to the Word of God, there are only two classes of people in the world. The Bible divides all the people of the world into only two classes, the lost and the saved. Therefore, as far as the Bible is concerned, all races, nationalities, educational achievements are insignificant. First of all, notice the message of the cross sounds foolish to those who are perishing. The word perish does not indicate extinction, but rather ruin, the loss of well-being. The two classes of people are based upon their evaluation of and their relation to the Word of God. Paul says that the cross is foolishness. In fact, that term, if you underline it in your text, you'll notice that it occurs five times in just eight verses. This word is a very important word. It is the word that we get the English word moron from. Most of us have lived for a long time, if not been born in, the Bible Belt of America. And we have a hard time remembering just how radical the message of the gospel is. We have heard the old, old story all of our lives. It doesn't seem strange to us. But we need to never forget that to a lost world, the means that God has chosen to save mankind just doesn't make sense on an intellectual basis. The great theologian C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said, that is one of the reasons I believe in Christianity. He says, it is a religion you could not have guessed. If it offered us just the kind of universe we had always expected, I should feel that they were making it up. But in fact, it is not the sort of thing anyone would have made up. It is just too odd a twist about the real things have. There is the message of the cross being the power of God to those who are being saved. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is not merely good advice, nor is it a message, just a message about the power of God. It is the power of God. And the proof of the message of the cross is not that it makes sense, but that it has power, that it works. There's a wonderful parallel in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 21. You may remember that the children of Israel are in trouble again. They're in trouble, they're trouble because of murmuring and complaining. And so God sends judgment upon them in the form of a fiery serpent. Suddenly they begin to cry out for deliverance from the snakes. And there's a marvelous lesson that applies here. Their means of escape, their only means of escape from their sin was to look at the brazen serpent and they are told to look in faith. They were 
Aaron, Moses were told to make a bronze snake, put it on a pole and lift it up and say, all who look on this image in faith will be healed. You have to imagine that some of the people said, that's just plain nonsense. That's just plain nonsense. They would want a more comprehensive plan. They would want something more tangible than just turning around and looking at a serpent of brass. But of course, if a man would not turn to look at the serpent of brass, he would die. Those who looked lived, and those who did not died. Jesus made an application of that in his conversation to Nicodemus that's recorded in John chapter 3. In verse 14 it says, And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you say, well, so how was the Son of Man lifted up? Well, he was lifted up on a cross. But the problem for the Jew was that they could simply not envision, they could not imagine a crucified Messiah. That was an oxymoron to them. It didn't make sense that those two terms could even go together, a crucified Messiah. It is difficult for us to understand what crucifixion meant to the Jew. We have cleaned up the cross. We have domesticated it. We have gold-plated it, and we wear it around our necks. We put it on earrings, and we put it on stationery. We hang ornamental crosses in our sanctuaries and attach them to our steeples. All of this would have been unthinkable in first century A.D. So terrible was crucifixion that the word was not even spoken in polite company. And if you want a modern counterpart, we should hang a picture of a gas chamber in the front of our sanctuary. Or put a hangman noose on the front of the pulpit here this morning, this evening. Or perhaps we could have a banner with an electric chair picturing a man dying in agony. A black cloth covering his head, smoke coming from underneath the cloth. The very thought sickens us. And that is how they felt about the cross. The second thing that I want you to see, not only the cross either divides or unites us, but secondly, the wisdom of man never leads to God. First, we look at the first half of that, and that's man's dilemma. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. Perhaps we ought to spend a moment or two defining the two words we hear over and over in this passage, and it is wisdom and foolishness. 
Wisdom, as it occurs in both the Old and New Testament, involves the application of knowledge to guide daily life. Those who are wise must have truth, and they must be able to apply it. Mere human wisdom breaks down at both of those points. Though human wisdom has flashes and flickers of truth, it is flooded with deception and half-truths. Human wisdom is unable to either separate truth from fiction or to correctly apply truth even when it's discerned. Paul says the proof this is how man responds to the cross when it's proclaimed. So how does a self-proclaimed wise man respond? They think it is foolishness or nonsense or folly. From the world's standpoint, Christianity seems foolish because it is so paradoxical. We can think of a number of paradoxes that are given to us in the Bible. We find rest under a yoke. We reign by serving. We're to be made great by becoming little. We're to be exalted by being humble. We are to wax strong by being weak. We are to live by dying. We are to become wise by being fools for Christ's sake. Paul pictures rather clearly where worldly wisdom leads in Romans chapter 1. He says in verse number 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what, they, what may be known of God is manifest to them, for God is, has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but become futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22 says, And professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. It says in that passage that every man has two witnesses, regardless of where he is in this world. Deepest, darkest part of Africa, no matter where he may be, he has two witnesses. He has the witness of his conscience, which tells him things that are wrong, and he has the witness of creation. Every man should be able to look at creation and say, there is a force behind this greater than ourselves. But the reality is, man is not moving upward. Man is not getting better and better. There is no such thing as a man moving upward. In fact, these verses contradict the theory of evolution. Man is not improving physically and morally and intellectually or spiritually. The pull is downward. Of course, this contradicts all the collected works of religion that start with man in a very primitive condition with very little little intellectual capability and move up intellectually 
and being and all the while moving him toward God. That's absolutely not true. Man is moving away from God. And right now the world is no closer to God than at any time in its past. The fact of the matter is that every primitive tribe has a tradition that says way back when in the beginning the ancestors knew God. Dr. Vincent said in his word studies the New Testament, he says, I think it may be proved from facts that any given people down to the lowest savages have at any period in its history known far more than it has done, known quite enough to have established it to have gotten on a comfortable level and thrived and developed if it had only done what man should do, and that is live up to what he knows. No people have ever lived up to the light that they had. And although they had a knowledge of God, it says in Romans chapter 1, they moved away from God. The wisdom of this world does not lead naturally to the knowledge of God. Men are not saved by what they know, but by whom they believe. God's solution, it begins to be told in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now it does say the foolishness of preaching. It doesn't say the preaching of foolishness. I've heard some of that in my days. To the Jews, he says, the cross was a stumbling block. It's a real interesting word. In the original, it is a word that we get our word scandal from. He says they were scandalized by the cross. They stumbled over the cross. It was a complete scandal to them because, according to Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 23, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The Jews stumbled over the cross because it revealed Jesus as a different kind of Messiah than they were looking for. They wanted a Messiah who could organize an army. They wanted a Messiah who could defeat the Romans. Dying on a cross did not look like success to them. It did not look like power. It looked like defeat and failure. And they kept stumbling over it. Jesus did not come to start a political movement and overthrow Rome. He came to start a spiritual revolution that would overthrow and defeat Satan. On the other hand, the Greeks depended on wisdom. Logic tells us babies are not born to virgins. Right? Logic tells us that all powerful gods do not allow themselves to be crucified. Logic tells us that dead men do not come back to life after three days. None of that makes any sense logically. So to the Greeks, the, Jew, the core of the Christian beliefs look like foolishness. Jews look for the dramatic, for the miraculous in their confirmation, and the Greeks look for a definite philosophical proof. 
The third thing is that the wisdom of man is never as wise as God. But the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul is simply saying, if it were possible for God to be foolish, and it's not, he would still be wiser than the wisest man. If it were possible for God to be weak, and it's not, he would still be stronger than the strongest man. God's power is not man's power, but it is available to men. It is not of man, but it is offered to men. It is the power of deliverance from sin. And it is possible through the power of the foolishness of the preaching of the cross. George McLeod wrote a poem that I want to close with this evening that I think puts the cross into perspective. He says, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as the steeple of the church. I am recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on a town garbage dump, at the crossroads of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in three languages, in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. At the kind of place where cynics talk smut, and thieves curse, and soldiers gamble, because that is where he died, and that is what he died about, and that is where Christ's men ought to be, and that's what church people ought to shout. The cross is still ever with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the never-changing message of the cross. And although it is still deemed foolishness by those who are lost, we who have been saved know that it is the power, it is the power of salvation. Father, if there's one here tonight that doesn't know you as their personal Savior, I pray in some way the message might have touched their heart, helped them realize their need, their need to recognize that they are sinners. That's not unique. We all are. But because they're sinners, they cannot save themselves. There's nothing they can ever do that make themselves worthy of a place in heaven. That Jesus has already done everything necessary. That he went to the cross with no sins of his own in order that he might be a substitute for us that he might pay the penalty for our sins. Father, I pray if there's one here today that doesn't know that, never come under the power of your sacrifice. I pray they'd recognize that they are sinners. I pray that they repent, recognize that their sins are wrong, and that they would call upon you to be forgiven. And recognize that right here, right now, in the quietness of this place, that they can receive the free gift of salvation. They can leave this place knowing they have a place in heaven. For us who are saved, I pray that you'd reaffirm in us our past decision 
and give us once again a passion to reach those around us with the truth and the message of the cross. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?